Jeff Bastian, and you're listening to Ignited with Meaning, where we'll be exploring the terrain of a meaningful life, creating a roadmap for that, and generating more happiness along the way. Have you ever wondered what the meaning of life is or how to make your life more meaningful? We're here to find answers to those questions, and today we'll be talking with Gifford Pinchot III to get his take. The name Gifford Pinchot III might sound familiar to you. While Gifford has plenty of noteworthy accomplishments in his own right, he is also the descendant of Gifford Pinchot I, who served as the first chief of the United States Forest Service from 1905 to 1910, and as the 28th governor of Pennsylvania. Throughout his life, Gifford I really changed the conversation about how to manage forests by showing how a conservation ethic could lead to the greatest long-term output and profit, which put conservation of forests high on America's priority list, and the Gifford Pinchot National Forest was ultimately named after him. What's striking about that and why I take the time to bring it up is that while the Gifford I'm interviewing was only three years old when his grandfather passed away, there are some striking similarities, not just in name, but in terms of conservation ethic, business acumen, and being able to see how the two can fit together. Gifford III has several notable accomplishments, many of which we'll discuss, but won't have time for all of them, so I will call out a few of them here. The first, and one we'll talk about in depth in this interview, is this idea of intrapreneurship, which is kind of like entrepreneurship, but it's more about innovation from within an existing company rather than going out to start a brand new company of your own. We'll be exploring both entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship and the role that purpose and meaning play in being a successful innovator. Secondly, after a successful dot-com exit, Gifford III started a graduate school offering an MBA in sustainability and social justice with the tagline of changing business for good. This grad school was originally founded as Bainbridge Graduate Institute, later changed names to Pinchot University, and is now part of the Presidio Graduate School. Gifford basically set out to change the conversation in the business community such that businesses can and must profitably take on ventures that are both good for the environment and good for people, and that business education must be a leader in this. Graduates from this program are working in major corporations and in government throughout the country and are focused on helping businesses uh, achieve a triple bottom line of profits, planet, and people. I got my MBA at that school. It's where I first started thinking deeply about and studying happiness, and that's where I first met Gifford. Lastly, one thing I love about this conversation with Gifford is that we get into the idea of having fun while doing good. I love talking about a meaningful life and would argue that it is the essential pillar for a happy life, but I also love thinking about how to optimize happiness while pursuing purpose and meaning. In this interview, Gifford introduces this idea of a hapo-damo ratio as a way of optimizing fun and meaning, and at the end of the show, I'm going to challenge you to find some way, big or small, to take a look at some way you can optimize your hapo-damo ratio and share that idea with me so that I can share it with my listeners. So without further ado, join me as we hear Gifford's story talk about entrepreneurship and purpose, and get some ideas for tackling important issues while having fun.
Gifford, first of all, I wanted to say uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jeff. And not only that, but I actually wanted to start off with a pretty big uh, thank you. Thank you, not just for taking the time today, but also for the countless hours and energy that went into co-founding Baybridge Graduate Institute, where I got my master's in sustainable business. It was um, a truly excellent education where I got many of the skills that have helped me succeed in a business context while also doing good. So many thanks. Oh, you're most welcome. It was a labor of love. <laughs> right. Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm really excited to be able to talk with you today, explore some ideas around your life and how they pertain to you know, meaning and happiness. So in addition for being known for co-founding Bainbridge Graduate Institute with your wife, Libba, uh, I'm hoping you can start by introducing yourself to the audience by talking about one of the other things you're best known for, which is coining the term and then teaching about intrapreneurship. So what is an entrepreneur? How is it different from an entrepreneur? How did you come with the, up with that idea? And would you consider yourself to be an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur? Well, that's a lot of questions. So I'll start at the top. Uh, uh, so an entrepreneur is someone who acts like an entrepreneur, but inside the company and for the benefit of the company. So they start businesses for the company. They create new processes for the company. Any kind of innovation basically requires someone to act like an entrepreneur. Bureaucrats can't do it. Committees can't do it. Uh, it, it. It requires a passionate entrepreneur. And there's a lot of evidence for this of people who have done studies of successful products. And one of the main things they come up with, gee, in every successful product, we can find a passionate entrepreneur who is driving it through all the obstacles of the corporate immune system, which exists to stomp out new ideas. It takes tremendous uh, willingness to keep going in the face of opposition to get a new idea that is really going to change things done inside a large uh, organization. And it doesn't seem to be that there's any way to create, to stop that, but there are some things that you can do to uh, make a pathway despite all the opposition. The most important one of which is the existence of sponsors who are managers who create a protective umbrella over the entrepreneurs. They coach them, uh, they help them find resources and generally, uh, 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 defend them when the system is trying to shut them down. So that combination of an entrepreneur and some managers who are protecting the entrepreneur is what makes uh, innovation happen inside large organizations. So how did you come up with that idea? Well, uh, I was uh, uh, had just uh, shut down uh, my blacksmithing business. It had been successful for a number of years. We had showrooms in 10 cities and 20 smiths pounding away in the barn. And then we were discovered by uh, Mexican blacksmithing operations who could produce everything we made at half the price. And uh, we were copied by them. We were copied by uh, people who were casting uh, versions of our hand-forged products and so forth. And the business went into free fall. And uh, so we closed it down. We sold it actually to someone who had lower cost basis. And uh, there I was. Uh, I owed the bank $80,000. Uh, I was, uh, 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 the interest rate was 23% and I was an unemployed blacksmith with young children. And I decided that I would probably have to get a job uh, that uh, starting another business uh, with my uh, balance sheet was probably not gonna work. And uh, so then I thought about what kind of job I wanted to have. And I decided that uh, since I had spent my life as an entrepreneur, why couldn't I be in 
entrepreneur inside the employer who hired me and uh, then sat down and with the help of my wife wrote a, a, a paper on this uh, subject of, uh, of how to be an entrepreneur inside a large organization and how large organizations could benefit from and also support entrepreneurs uh, and uh, handed it out. Uh, and uh, it got to Norman McRae at the London Economist. Uh, and he wrote a three-page article about the concept of entrepreneuring, crediting me with having come up with it and said it was a very, very promising idea. And things kind of took off after that. Uh, other other press organizations came. Uh, you know, the next one was the Christian Science Monitor, but it it spread out, and and pretty soon Harper and Row came and asked me if I would write a book on the subject. And uh, even though I wasn't a writer of, uh, in any sense, you know, I was more of a science major. I uh, I said yes, and then spent a couple of years learning how to write while I was making a living uh, uh, working for someone else. So I want to come back to this question of whether or not you consider yourself an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur in a, in a minute, but um, I'm wondering if you can give uh, an example of, of an entrepreneur. Do you have any classic case studies of someone who is successful in that context? Are you talking entrepreneur or entrepreneur? Uh, entrepreneur. Yeah. I'll tell a slightly different story, which is Elizabeth Whalen, uh, uh, and, and she was in uh, branding management at Columbia Forest Products. And uh, the R&D folks had come up with a new glue, but it wasn't, uh, it was based on uh, the way muscles uh, bond to rocks. And it used soy as its input rather than uh, petroleum products. And it was not toxic like the glues which were used uh, in those uh in those days. So the idea of a non-toxic glue really appealed to her and to see it not not going anywhere just uh, wasn't uh, good enough. So she began pushing very strongly and she soon encountered a strong resistance inside the company. The manufacturing department thought, well, you know, we've been using these formaldehyde-based uh, glues, which, yeah, it's true, they're carcinogen, but they're approved by code everywhere. And why should we... Uh, 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 not just continue doing what we're doing. How do we know what would happen if we use this glue? Sure, it tests well in the lab, but you know there's a big difference between the lab and production. And who is this young woman uh, that is uh, trying to push this idea forward? And they began saying nasty things about her, which I won't repeat, but uh, let me assure you they were nasty. And, uh, and then the industry press uh, ganged on and began writing things about how she was trying to destroy the, the plywood industry. And here's this young woman. Uh, she's got a, a full-time job. She's uh, uh, in graduate school full-time and she gets pregnant and she says, I just don't know how I went on uh, with all this uh, resistance. And then she said, uh, but I knew it wouldn't happen without me. And so she decided to dig in and actually make this thing happen. And that's what entrepreneurs do. They, they, they take an idea, maybe their own, maybe somebody else's, in this case, somebody else's, and they make it happen. Uh, uh, it's about practical steps that you take to get things uh, uh, to actually happen. To, and all that is driven by, uh, by passion. And so uh, since she had struck out inside the company, uh, she decided to use systems thinking to, to take a bigger picture and say, what is this problem embedded in, uh, which is a very powerful tool for getting things solved when they seem impossible. And she said, well, let's include our customers 
in this uh, picture. And let's include uh, the whole country and ask ourselves, where can I get support? And she went to California, which was their biggest uh, customer base. And she went to the EPA and, uh, and then she began building a coalition of 15 nonprofits, health-oriented nonprofits, all of whom got together and began continuously pushing on the EPA to do something about formaldehyde in plywood because it was killing people in the plant and it was killing people in the customer base. Uh, uh, that seemed like a bad thing. And so the EPA uh, eventually uh, issued a directive from the uh, Air Resources Board that's for all practical purposes banned formaldehyde in, uh, in, in, in plywood. The result was uh, that uh, Columbia Forest Products was the only company that could sell plywood in California. Now, you can see that that is one thing. It is a, a, a tremendous financial benefit to the company, and it uh, not only uh, gave them a lot of new business immediately, but it gave them the reputation of being an innovative uh, company in the industry and someone who solved the real problems that the industry was was up against. And so you see two things here. You see purpose and you see uh, 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 profit. And the way entrepreneurs are driven is that the purpose is the primarily the primary driver, but the money is how they keep score. You have to make money in business ultimately for something to scale and, uh, and, 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 and last. So it's not enough just to get your purpose done. You have to get it done in a way that makes money for your employer. And uh, that's, that's the dilemma that entrepreneurs are in. <laughs> but, uh, and it's the problem that they solve. Yeah. And uh, it's no different for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs tend to be driven by purpose also. And they also have to make money or the bank will take them out of business or whatever. So this is, this is just how it is in business. Same, same in both inside and outside in that regard. Well, that is a, a a remarkable story. I'm really it's interesting to hear your description of the entrepreneur and, and that story how it matches it, where you have somebody who has an idea. Uh, in this case, it's somebody else's idea, but there's just a, a need to get it done, and so there's a lot of parallel there between the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur. There's there's an idea that needs to be brought to life. I guess I'm just wondering why wouldn't Elizabeth Whalen? I think you said why would she? not just become an entrepreneur? What's the benefit of being an entrepreneur? Well, the benefit of being an entrepreneur is that Columbia Forest Products was the largest producer of, of uh, hardwood plywood in North America. And so uh, if she convinced them to use the glue, uh, it, would be a, it would change the industry, which is what it did. Uh, uh, so the whole industry eventually had to go to non-toxic uh, glues. And her goal was to have a large impact if she wanted to actually achieve her purpose, staying in Columbia Forest Products uh, made sense. And this is often the case. I mean, let's say that you're a, a GE employee and you have an idea for a new uh, low energy locomotive. Are you really going to go into the locomotive business? There isn't. Entering that business is almost impossible today. The, the players are very strongly entrenched in place. And you need to change what the, the, the big players do. Now, there are other situations where entrepreneurship is much better in the sense of it, it makes it easier for you to get uh, your vision done. But uh, I think this is a perfect example of a, of a case where it's, entrepreneurship was not an option. So going back to that question then of, of what you consider yourself to be, an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, which one uh, better describes you and why have you taken that path? 
So I think I'm probably typical of uh, a lot of what I will call preneurial people. Uh, uh, we've done both. Uh, uh, my uh, when I took a job uh, at uh, Innotech, which was a consulting firm, uh, uh, back uh, before I had written uh, Entrepreneuring. Uh, one of my uh, early things was to invent a whole new consulting practice in, in, in technical uh, uh, strategy and, uh, and a new way of doing technical strategy. And I, I launched that inside the company and, and, and got a series of clients to uh, do this uh, new thing. And so I was an entrepreneur. Uh, then uh, I left that company and uh, led a, a walkout of four employees and, and we started a new consulting firm. And then I was an entrepreneur at BGI. I started out as a entrepreneur driving the creation of the new, uh, the new organization. And uh, after I stepped down, uh, my title was uh, entrepreneur in residence. So, uh, and I worked on launching new things inside the organization. So I do both. And I think that uh, lots of entrepreneurial uh, people looking at their career, do both. Maybe they start inside a big company and they, uh, uh, at some point they get frustrated. Uh, we've done hundreds of uh, exit interviews of, of successful entrepreneurs who left uh, a, a big company at some point to, to form their venture. And we find the story is pretty much the same everywhere. It's not about money, surprisingly enough. It's about, I had an idea and they stomped on it, uh, but I got cleverer. So I had an idea and I hid it and I got a lot further along before they stomped on it. And uh, I uh, had, uh, and you know, about the, the fifth time this happens, they say, I'm madder than hell and I'm going to take this idea out and I'm going to show the sons of bitches uh, uh, that they made a big mistake by not listening to me. And then they go out and they start a very successful company that humiliates their former employer. So the, the lesson here, first of all, is what's driving the entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs, which is to get their ideas implemented. And if you, as a company, you respect that and, and give them the opportunity to implement a fair percentage of their ideas, or at least to, uh, to try without undue resistance, uh, they'll stay with you for the most part. But if you, uh, if you frustrate them, they'll leave. And, and this can be a bad thing for the company. So one of the, one of the, in addition to, gee, these entrepreneurs could do all these wonderful things for you, uh, entrepreneurial people uh, uh, would be better off to remain in your company from your shareholders' point of view, so you should treat them nicely. And uh, that's part of what I, I do is I help companies to understand what it is that entrepreneurs really need and how to set up situations that are conducive to their success. Well, that's a, a really helpful explanation. And um, I, I think, did you just coin a new term, preneur? Is that is that also a given <laughs> show that they're an original? Yeah, yeah, you spell you spell it dash preneur, and uh, uh, and uh, I I think that the term is needed because so many of the things that you want to say are equally true of intra and entrepreneurs. There's there's a very very similar uh, personality structure. They are driven by vision. They are moderate risk takers. They have a beautiful balance of intuition and, uh, and uh, analysis. Uh, and that kind of both and characteristics of uh, the entrepreneurs, they're using both their right brain and their left brain. They are both uh, uh, willing to take a certain amount of risk and doing a lot to manage that risk and reduce it by finding ways to lock something in that supports them. They are both uh, 
driven by vision, but they also uh, uh, take money seriously and, uh, and, and, and manage money, not because it's the most important thing in life, which it's not. Uh, one of the things that happened to me with entrepreneuring is that I, I, I mentioned that I had been in, in financial stress uh, uh, coming into the writing of entrepreneuring, and that, that was still true. I was getting paid as a consultant, but uh, my uh, take-home uh, salary was $500 a, a month less than uh, my rent and uh, debt service, so I had to have a second job. Uh, and uh, and I, you know, was raising a, a young family, and uh, uh, and and then it was uh, uh, financially somewhat stressful. And then when the book came out, uh, within a couple of weeks, uh, I was getting multiple calls a week from Fortune 100 companies asking me to come down and uh, and uh, help them uh, in, in install entrepreneuring and and being willing to pay uh, reasonably uh, substantial fees to do that. And I went from lower middle class under stress to uh, uh, the upper end of uh, middle class uh, from a financial point of view overnight. Wow. And I noticed something that I would not have noticed if this had happened more slowly was it didn't make that much difference in terms of how happy I was. Uh, I, I still had the relationship with my wife to deal with. And, and, and she actually, as I went around giving speeches everywhere, thought I was getting a little too big for my britches and that I was uh, not fulfilling my uh, responsibilities as a father. And uh, she was probably less happy with me than she had been when we were struggling together financially trying to make ends, ends meet. So one of the most important things in your happiness was actually not better. Uh, my relationship with my kids was not improved by uh, by this. Another thing that is really really important in happiness, and it was really nice not to be worrying about paying the bills. So that that actually not having stress is also good for you. But the the point is that I I, I learned from that instance something about the importance of money, and that even though we spend our lives striving to make money. Uh, we spend a surprising amount of our lives uh, working on, uh, on on that. It's not what it's, life is really all about, and uh, and that is, uh, I, I'm I'm grateful for having had that sudden change in uh, in my circumstances to make it very clear to me what matters in life. Well, that brings me to a, a question that I have around work-life balance. Uh, you describe in your book that the entrepreneur is someone who might make sacrifices. And I'm just, you're touching on this now, but I'm wondering how you think about that today. What sorts of sacrifices are needed to be successful as an entrepreneur? And how do you do, how do you balance that with the idea of staying grounded or as you're talking about now, um, managing, you know, your relationships with your family and your kids? So first of all, uh, I think I am not uh, the world's uh, champion on uh, work-life balance. So I just want to—I'll uh, talk to this point, but I don't want to hold myself up as a as an exemplar. Uh, I think one of the things you need to know about entrepreneurship, and which should be true, but maybe is not about entrepreneurship, is that entrepreneurs are somewhat episodic in their overwork. That—that that is to say. Uh, uh, there are periods of time when you're starting a business when 
everything is so out of control and the crises are so great that you work very long hours and 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 that is not work life balance but there are also times when things are running more smoothly and you can take time to uh, uh, t- time to relax and are you saying that that's true of of both entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs alike it it is certainly true of entrepreneurs but Entrepreneurs are probably expected to show up for work, uh, uh, e- you know, even after they have done something. The, the classic example would be what happens after you sell your company or as an entrepreneur, basically move out of that project and move into a new project. You know, it's done and uh, it's embedded in the organization now and you don't need to uh, be involved anymore. And what should happen then uh, is similar to what happens with uh, uh, with entrepreneurs, which is that they take three months off and, uh, and 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 go travel the world or something with the money jingling in their pocket, as my old mentor used to say to me. Don't do anything, Gifford, after you've had a big success. Uh, 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 just wait to see what it is that you really want to do next. There's no rush, you know. And, and I've been in that situation and uh, uh, and have. Tried to take that advice, and uh, and when I think about mistakes I've made, one of the mistakes I've made is not taking enough time to really know what I wanted to do next, and uh, uh, sort of to continue uh, working on things that didn't matter all that much. Uh, so I I'm hearing yeah, it, it it's that's an interesting uh, contrast though, as you've talked about now being a. Entrepreneur and an entrepreneur, and and sort of the benefit of an entrepreneur is that you you might have to put in that extra work, uh, and you can take advantage of all the extra resources of the company. But when you wrap up that project, you don't necessarily get three months off. And at the same time, um, as an entrepreneur, you might have additional uh, difficulties, and that there's you can't just clock out at five o'clock. Um, sometimes like an entrepreneur can, you can't take advantage of the fact that you already have an HR system and a accounting system built up. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the themes that I have as a part of this podcast, I mean, the, the title of it is ignited with meaning and that's both the title and the theme and the inspiration for it is this idea that when you're doing something that you find meaningful, it in- infuses you with the energy needed to do things that maybe you didn't even know were possible. And so far, you've talked quite a bit a lot about passion as part of the one of the key ingredients of the entrepreneur. And I'm just wondering if this if this theme of ignited with meaning uh, is is the right f- is a fit with your idea of an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Uh, that is, uh, entrepreneurs do extraordinary things. Uh, as I mean, for example, the story of Elizabeth uh, shows that. I mean, uh, this was not something that you would expect from a young uh, professional marketing person in a mid-level marketing job uh, in, in a company. Uh, she went way above and beyond uh, that. And she did that because she was ignited with meaning. She said, I just couldn't let these people die. Uh, this was incredibly inconvenient for me, given where I was in life, but I just couldn't let these people die when I knew I could do something about it. That's deep meaning and deep purpose. And that's what drives entrepreneurs is that, that they decide that something needs to happen and that it has great meaning and purpose for them that, that it should happen. Uh, and, uh, and therefore they go for it in a way that, uh, 
is not uh, typical of ordinary uh, employment. And, and is there a difference between an entrepreneur who has that deep sense of meeting and one who doesn't? The actual technical term for them is promoter. And so th- this is one of the most important things that managers can do, which is to learn to tell the difference between entrepreneurs and promoters. Promoters talk a good game, but they don't do what needs to be done to get things to happen. They don't have the uh, consistency of purpose. So when uh, uh, when an entrepreneur when an entrepreneur encounters uh, an executive who says stop doing that, they figure out how to keep going despite that. Uh, when a, uh, a a promoter a promoter is basically in the game for power and money. They're not in the game because they're trying to transform the world in some meaningful way. And so, if the, they're encountering resistance uh, from the uh, people who have great power in the organization, what's the sensible thing to do? You don't want to buck the uh, those people. Those are the people who are going to determine your promotion. So you drop the idea and come up with another idea, and you uh, get very good at making powerpoints and uh, and uh, and expressing the reason why something should go through and why you should be given money and a lot of people reporting to you and uh, status in the organization in order to pursue this thing. But those are different kinds of motivation than the motivation which drives uh, entrepreneurs. And, and And the promoters can look like entrepreneurs unless you know what you're looking for. You know, it's it's interesting because um, I'm just reflecting back on you know my experience, and I think one of the the difference there is you know just just thinking of myself as an entrepreneur as or just having any idea really, it's you lose heart and you you don't have the the stick-to-itness to actually see something through to the next level, and and that's what I'm finding is that you know I I really need to care deeply about it. Um, to have that longitudinal um, uh, tenacity over time in order to make something happen. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct, and I, I think it's typical of entrepreneurs. Uh, and uh, and 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 it, and it leads to an important message, which is: don't take on a project which requires innovation, and uh, in in which there's going to be some difficulties along the way, unless uh, you care passionately about it. Uh, Because as you say, you won't have the energy to follow through. So it'll end up being a failure rather than a success. That's not good for the shareholders. It's not good for your career. It's not good for your happiness. So uh, you got to be very uh, strict as someone who wants to be an entrepreneur in saying, I'm only going to take this on if it has deep meaning for me. We like to say that an an entrepreneur does not have an idea. An idea has an entrepreneur. And when we, if you look at Elizabeth or any of the other entrepreneurs I'm talking about, they were not able to stop working on it because it meant so much to them. So the idea had a sort of compulsion. Well, I think that that's a great segue. One of the things that you just mentioned the word happiness. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm passionate about, I think that we share a passion about is this idea of climate change. So you have had some interesting things that I've looked at, uh, both a TED Talk and an article. And I find you using the words climate change and fun in the same sentence. And I think that this is a really interesting concept to try to 
pair of climate change, fun ideas of happiness. Um, and so I'd like to talk about those a little bit. You know, one yeah. of the things that you did is you wrote this uh, piece called Recovering from Climate Depression. I'm wondering if you're able to um, tell us a little bit about that piece and you know what it is today um, that makes you feel optimistic and pessimistic about climate change. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I'll just mention that I think there's good reasons to be pessimistic about climate change in the sense that uh, we're not doing anything about it at a scale that is necessary. There's also reasons to be optimistic about uh, climate change. And, and one of them is the fact that uh, that we've crossed a, an important uh, uh, tipping point in doing something about climate change because it turns out that wind and solar uh, are in many cases cheaper than coal. Uh, and you have uh, Excel in, in, in Colorado shutting down uh, uh, coal plants that are not at the end of their useful life because it just isn't economical to feed coal into them anymore when they have uh, uh, renewable energy that they can use instead. And so what's, what's happening uh, is that Doing something about it is becoming a lot easier and is less dependent on government than it used to be. It used to be that renewable energy really needed government subsidies to work. And government subsidies are still a really good idea to speed the process up, and uh, in particular carbon taxes. But uh, that uh, we're making good progress without that. And companies are increasingly seeing that they have to step up because uh, uh, government is not doing its job. And, and, and that is, uh, that is uh, very, very encouraging. At a deeper level, part of my, uh, you know, my, my gloom and doom uh, on climate change 10 years ago was, was such that uh, I would wake up in, 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 in the morning and my pillow would be wet with tears, crying in my sleep uh, over what humanity was doing. And I had a tremendous... Uh, feeling of being part of a species that had no sense and uh, couldn't, uh, no, couldn't deal ethically with uh, the challenge that uh, our behavior is causing uh, and that uh, climate change would be, uh, you know, we'd lose half the, if we, if we go over to the tipping point, we'll lose half the species on earth and, uh, and the human population will be very small compared to what it is uh, uh, today. And, we should not, we should be doing something about that. We should be doing more than we're doing. When you have an issue that's that big, I can imagine that there's two different responses of an individual. One of them <clears throat> to just check out, to say, this is too difficult and too painful to be a part of. And it's good right now. If I can just kind of keep my head down and, you know, just do a little bit on the periphery uh, to to try to do my part that'll be okay. But I'm just wondering, you know, when you get engaged in something that's has such potential terrible outcomes, uh, how do you stay positive day in and day out when you're working on something like that? Well, uh, I like to say that there are three broad uh, responses to climate change possible. Uh, denial, depression, and doing something about it. And I think it turns out that, I don't know why this is exactly, but it, 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 you can reach an okay state of mind as long as you feel 
that you're doing something about it. Uh, it, it I often hear uh, the grandchildren uh, mentioned in this, and you know, are are you going to be able to stand up uh, in, in front of your grandchildren when uh, when it becomes really obvious that uh, uh, that we've made some mistakes and say, well, at least I was doing something about it, and your grandchildren would say, uh, I'm proud of you, Grandpa. Uh, 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 and you can feel, well, you know, I lived my life right. Uh, I think I think that is a source of considerable good cheer. Uh, and uh, the problem is bigger than any one of us can solve. So I think uh, as... Uh, Entrepreneurial people, we have to say, uh, okay, what can I do about this? And then find some satisfaction in that. The other form of satisfaction that I found is realizing that if we completely blow it and we go into a hothouse and we lose half the species and we uh, uh, pare humanity down to perhaps under a billion people, maybe a little more, I don't know how, how uh, creative people will be in finding ways to deal with the hothouse state. Uh, the planet will still be here. Humanity will still be here. Uh, Mother Nature has been through climate change many times, uh, and uh, and her response is always the same. She loses about half her species uh, going into the hothouse, and then she goes into a paroxysm of uh, creativity and creates a whole bunch of new species. And in many cases, uh, these are uh, are are good breakthroughs. Uh, go back to the Cambrian explosion. Uh, 542 million uh, years ago. And uh, in 20 million years, which is a blink of the eye in geological time, virtually every major category of life that wasn't uh, the pre-existing uh, single-celled organisms evolved. And uh, so the space that was cleared by... Uh, 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 by of rapid temperature change allowed this radiation of new new ways of being, new kinds of life, and so Mother Nature will be fine uh, uh, if we if we if we go into a hothouse period, and human beings will still be around. Uh, specialists who depend exactly on 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 the current uh, situation, like monarch butterflies who arrive ready to eat milkweed at a certain uh, period of time. And, and, and if the milkweed isn't uh, at the right time, we're going to see a huge decline of, uh, of, uh, of species like monarchs, which incidentally we're seeing. Uh, and uh, human beings have shown the ability to live in a great variety of uh, different ecosystems. And that versatility will ensure that we're still around. And one final, one final positive, after every huge disaster in, in, in human history, there is a renaissance that follows. The renaissance follows the Black Plague. So I think, okay, the worst, uh, the worst is that the next uh, uh, few hundred uh, uh, years will be really bad, but then we'll get back to having good times again. And I, and, and I know that it's not... Uh, uh, terribly uh, reassuring, but uh, it is, we're not talking about the end of the game. We humans will learn something from whatever happens. We humans will learn from it and will behave better in the future. I, I find what you're saying to be fascinating, essentially that there's three ways and maybe a fourth of thinking about this. The first one is denial. The second one is depression. And the third one is 
doing something about it um, and knowing that, you know, even if you do something about it or in any of those situations, if the worst case comes to be, there's a little bit of a psychological immunity you have there and saying, you know what, sometimes good things come out of bad things. Um, I think that right now we're still in the game of that third option of let's do something about that. Uh, I think it would be great to avoid some of the suffering that could uh, come to be if we lose 80% of the world's population or 50% or it really, you know, even if we lost 20% due to the fact of a global food crisis shortage, that would be a tragedy almost unseen before on the face of the planet for the human species. And so, um, and at least for my grandkids, I'd love to do something about it. Yes. And, but I want to say that I don't think that this is binary. In other words, if we look at the outcome for, uh, the planet, uh, life forms, including humans, uh, it isn't either tipping point hothouse, at a given speed, there's lots of uh, gradation in the outcome. So the work that we're doing is not useless, no matter what happens. If 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 the worst happens and we got to go into a tipping point and we can't figure out how to stop it, which is, by the way, by no means given, we may have to consider geoengineering and so forth to uh, uh, to prevent going into a hothouse. But it uh, it. It isn't given that we're going to go there, uh, even if we continue being stupid for another couple of decades. Uh, we'll eventually wake up and begin uh, uh, doing something about it. And so it matters. It matters how fast we go through the transition, for example. Uh, if we can slow it down, even if we go all the way to the hothouse, we will have adapted and, this, and the animals uh, and, and plants will have adapted uh, to that, uh, that change and a lot more will survive. Uh, so even if we have the moderate success of slowing down the disaster, it will definitely uh, make a big difference in the, uh, in the outcome. And secondly, it's not too late to imagine we, we may melt the, uh, the ice and the, and the sea may rise uh, quite a distance. It's almost impossible to arrive to stop a significant sea rise now. But that doesn't mean that we go all the way into a hothouse. Uh, and there's things that, you know, there's things that are coming up that are really interesting about what we can do about it. The, the impact of both agriculture and forests is huge. And, and we can stop deforestation. Uh, it's not got the, uh, the, the, the political power that uh, that that uh, the fossil fuel industry has, uh, and and so we could decide to actually stop uh, deforestation. Uh, Brazil, in just a few years, cut their deforestation rate seventy five percent. Now, of course, <laughs> the bad news is that the new uh, new uh, president is not uh, on 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 board with uh, doing anything about that, and has decided to build roads all through the uh, the Amazon. And so, bad things are happening. But we know that good things can happen and have happened in in in, in the past. Uh, if we do the right uh, forms of uh, of agriculture, we can bury tremendous amounts of carbon in the soil, and these things are 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 really significant in terms of stopping climate change and can perhaps be done faster than changing out of fossil fuels. So uh, I think we shouldn't by any means give up 
we can still decide how bad this is, and uh, and we will. And I have confidence that uh, what we're seeing right now is a last ditch reaction uh, to save the status quo, and that uh, it's not going to hold. Uh, that the uh, the forces of doing something about it are going to become stronger and stronger. Uh, uh, it's pretty hard to deny climate change right now. Uh, the, uh, the the fires that we've had uh, around the world as a result of drying, the uh, uh, the flooding which is taking place, uh, and uh, and the fact that uh, we have situations, for example, in the Middle East where food problems and, uh, and and agriculture problems are in fact causing really bad things to happen. One of the things that I I think is most interesting about what you're talking about is. Going back to your TED talk about this idea of that, so yes, we have to you know think about how we can take action, and and frankly, it's really motivating and inspiring to hear you say that, you know, look, there's gradations, and so uh, doing something is not meaningless. Uh, that that every step we take uh, will help slow climate change, allow us to adapt, even if it is coming. So that that's inspiring and, and gives me. Um, you know, some good motivation, but there's then you have this other idea of, Hey, look, you know, what about happiness? Do, do we just need to, you know, have nothing but nose to the grindstone or, or can we have fun too? Um, and in your Ted talk, you talked about this idea of the hapodamo ratio. And I'm wondering if you can explain what that hapodamo ratio is and give an example of it. Okay. So, uh, I'll, I'll tell the long form of this uh, story. So uh, I was sitting in a, in a seminar at Hollyhock on, in British Columbia, and my son said to me, Dad, you cannot stay inside all week uh, uh, with weather like this uh, taking place. Uh, you have got to come outside and play, and I'll show you how the younger generation plays. And uh, I relented, and I uh, took the afternoon off, and uh, – Went out and he took me to the frisbee golf course at the local school, and uh, we played frisbee golf, uh, which is a game much like golf, played with small frisbees in which you try to throw them into a basket, as opposed to hitting a ball into a, a hole. But you count the number of throws it takes to get you there. And uh, as I said, we played thirty-six holes. Uh, uh, then we uh, went down to the lake uh, and. Uh, took off our clothes and dove into the lake and swam to a little island uh, uh, a few hundred yards away, climbed up a cliff, uh, ran around on top of the, uh, uh, on top of the sort of a stony island uh, until the yellow jackets discovered us and chased us. And we dove back into the water and swam back to our class, our clothes. And as, uh, as I was putting on my clothes, that's when the hapodemo ratio occurred to me. And I compared the day that we had uh, with, uh, playing a game of traditional ball golf. And, uh, uh, okay, the, the course which we had uh, was way more environmentally sound than, the, than a typical uh, uh, golf course today. Uh, no pesticides were used. No fungicides uh, were, were, were used. There was no irrigation involved. There were no electric motors. There was no power being used. There was no concrete. There was no chlorine in the lake, uh, et cetera. All the, uh, uh, the ways in which uh, that situation uh, in, the, in the golf course uh, was taking place, uh, 
was not present. Uh, and so our environmental impact was perhaps one one thousandth that of a game of traditional golf with followed by a, a dip in the club pool. And at that point, uh, but I said, you know, I think we were at least as happy, you know, when I thought about the yellow jackets and diving in the water and so forth, I thought this was a lot more fun than the, than the club pool. And actually, the game of disc golf is a little bit less serious than golf, so you don't get quite as upset. You kind of laugh when you hit a tree uh, and uh, ruin your shot and so forth. So uh, the uh, it, it seemed like if we stipulated that we only got the same amount of happiness, which I thought was generous, and we had one one-thousandth of the damage, then some very important variable was being optimized, and I called it the HAPO-DEMO ratio, the happiness generated by an activity divided by the amount of damage done by the activity. And uh, that uh, ratio- Love that idea, by the way. Yeah, that ratio is incredibly significant uh, uh, because what humans want is happiness. And so if we can provide more happiness than we are providing in the way in which we're organized today with a thousandth of the, uh, of the environmental damage, well, we've solved the problem of climate change and a whole bunch of other problems as well. And so looking at your decisions based on the HAPO-DAMO ratio turns out to be a very practical way to figure out what you can do to make uh, uh, the world better uh, both in terms of human happiness and in terms of uh, of climate change or toxicity or racism or uh, poverty or any of these things, we can say, uh, how is what we're doing increasing happiness and reducing the damage which is uh, which is uh, being done? And uh, uh, we only have to be maybe five times better than we are today on the hapodamo ratio for uh, to vanquish climate change and uh, and uh, to solve many of the other problems which we're, we're facing. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier was the discovery that, uh, you know, that being rich is not all that it's cracked up to be, uh, that having a lot of money doesn't make you happier. You need a certain amount of money. You need not to be uh, uh, really short of food and so forth. Those things are very, uh, you know, if, it, if you can't afford to heat your house in the winter, uh, it's going to make you less happy. But uh, but beyond a relatively small amount uh, of the things of life, uh, then uh, everything which uh, is really important to our happiness is meaning, relationship, spiritual progress, all those sorts of things which do not require stuff. Yes, and uh, that is why uh, why the uh, disc golf is a good example of the hapodamo ratio because it's having the same kind of happiness with a tiny, much, much smaller amount of stuff. Yes. And one of the things that you said there is that we're looking, what we're looking for is happiness. What I would say is that we're also looking for meaning. And what you're describing there in your hapodamo ratio is that you're creating a lot of happiness, but you're also creating a lot of meaning by effectively lowering the amount of, of damage that you're doing. So if your passion and what brings you meaning is is working on the purpose of mitigating climate change or slowing it down or stopping it, then uh, this is both a meaningful and a, a happiness activity. My, my 
mental model says that uh, meaning is one of the major inputs into happiness, but uh, you could say meaning is uh, is the value in itself, and that makes equal sense. So I just I don't th I don't think there's a great deal of difference between our point of views here. Right. Yes. And I, I, you know, I imagine that that you know whether it's climate change or anything else, you could probably add this happiness ratio to something like if your meaning is uh, environmental justice, or if your uh, meaning lies in in helping the needy. There's probably still a way to to try to infuse more happiness into it. And and I actually want to tell a little story here that. I mentioned this in my last episode, but I'm uh, hosting a climate change fundraising dance party. Mm -hmm. And the idea that I have here is that, you know, we want to be in that third category you said of making a difference and taking action on this. But sometimes it's nice to have a little fun doing it, too. And so I've found a venue, you know, we're charging some money, we're going to be asking for money at the door, or, or you know, in, in addition to that, to try to to make Oregon just the second state in the uh, in the United States to ha have an economy-wide cap on carbon emissions, but we're going to throw in the element of hey, let's dance too, and and give mm -hmm. people an opportunity to uh, spend time with their friends, uh, socializing, and then getting down. So I I think that that idea is critical uh, to to our, you know, personal sustainability. You want to work on these passionate issues that, you, that, that are, you care a lot about, but gosh, you want to lighten up a little bit and have some fun while you're doing it too. I think that's, that's uh, absolutely correct. And, and uh, as you know, I love to dance. So that's a really good example for me. And, uh, uh, I, and I, maybe I'll tell another story, which is a little, uh, a little, uh, a little different, but, uh, uh, my brother, uh, is, uh, Working uh, on a com building a company called uh, Whole Forest, which uh, uh, works in uh, uh, in Ecuador, in a uh, area where when he got there there were four hundred uh, campesinos in the in, in the in the village uh, going into the forest, cutting down trees, uh, squaring them up uh, by eye uh, with a chainsaw, and carrying out these uh, cants and selling them for very little money and therefore having to destroy quite a lot of forest and uh, in order to get anywhere and also high grading the forest and just taking out the valuable species. And what he's done is he said, we need a solution to tropical forestry. There are 300 species of trees in the area we're, we're uh, talking about. And uh, how do we do sustainable forestry? Do we cut them all down? Uh, uh, and uh, then just take the ones that uh, have good value and uh, and transport them out and sell them and leave the less rest lying there. Do do we only uh, do selective cutting and only take out the valuable trees? Then we're not building a sustainable forest that is resembles the forest that we came from. And furthermore, once the trees have no value, it's almost certain that they will all be cut down and a plantation of uh, uh, will be put in their place. Uh, 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 for producing oil, uh, uh, and and so uh, the uh, he said, there's no way you can do the kind of work that needs to be done in forestry uh, in, uh, in in Ecuador unless you create good jobs for the people, so that doing the right thing makes them happy, and 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 gives them a good uh, a good livelihood. Uh, and so what he uh, did originally was uh, he he's building. 
he's building a value-added processing plant uh, for the village, and uh, and they are making products like multi-species, uh, multi-color uh, uh, flooring, uh, and uh, shipping it in containers to the United States, so that uh, the uh, they cut one percent of the uh, of the forest every year in an equal mix of species with what's there, and building that into a business which can scale uh, is the solution to uh, how tropical forestry can be done in a sustainable way. Uh, right now, there is no such thing as uh, sustainable uh, forestry in, 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 in those tropical areas uh, because uh, uh, the closest you can come is to cut everything down and create a plantation. And that isn't really uh, creating, creating this incredibly wonderful, diverse uh, ecosystem which supports all the uh, the species that are are there, and what what he's doing is keeping the forest uh, the the same, uh, basically uh, uh, same same mix of species, same support for the uh, habitat for all the creatures and plants that uh, that uh, that live in there. And what his point is here is that you cannot do this. Nothing that you do will work unless it improves the lives of the people who are there. Uh, if, if, uh, if, if, if you don't do that, the illegal loggers will come in and take out the logs. Who's protecting uh, the, those forests from the, ra you know, the rash of uh, illegal logging, which goes on in, uh, in that area of the world, is the answer is the village themselves. Is they're defending their livelihoods. Uh, so... I think this is really uh, this idea that you can do uh, climate change without uh, making people's lives better at the same time. It can't be a hair shirt uh, operation or it, it simply will not uh, gain the support that it needs. And so I think uh, more dancing is probably called for people who are too serious about uh, uh, about trying to fix climate change or other problems of that kind have got to remember that there has to be fun or people won't join your movement. Yeah, I I love that uh, story that you just told about your you said your brother yeah uh, who's uh, b building a business that makes it so that the people there their life is improved by by doing this thing that is better at the end of the day for the tropical forest there and that makes them want to protect them mm -hmm. um and so i want to move into a couple of just questions that i've thrown together um i was going to ask if you have any regrets you know were there times when you made sacrifices in terms of you know, your level of involvement as an entrepreneur or as an entrepreneur that you regret and how would you do it differently now if you could? Uh, sometimes I bite off more than I, uh, I, I should. And, it, and, it, uh, and here's an example. Uh, uh, when entrepreneuring was successful, uh, I built up a, a consulting organization with a fair number of employees who are going out doing entrepreneuring. Uh, I don't think that was the right choice for me. I think the right choice for me would have been to do my own consulting, have a couple of people who were uh, there, uh, people with different skills, 
and uh, gone back and and uh, to writing and uh, and 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 being a thought leader in the entrepreneuring space rather than running around trying to keep uh, everyone employed. There's a kind of a feed the elephant kind of thing when you have 20 uh, consultants uh, working for you. Uh, where you got to f- sell enough business so that you keep all those uh, consultants uh, uh, busy. And uh, that wasn't a good use of my time. Uh, other people could have uh, built cons- consulting organizations. And, I, and, I, and the funny thing is I didn't actually make more money doing that than I would have just doing my own work with much lower overhead. So uh, I regret not immediately going and writing more books at that time, for example. So today's generation, all of my friends and even myself, I don't f- make time to read books. So I'm just kind of curious about your, ha- your habits around finding time or making time to read them. I'm what my wife refers to as readerish. I enjoy reading a lot. So making time to read is, uh, uh, it's not like I'm not motivated. And I, uh, I don't always finish books, you know. Paul Hawken once said, you know, you read the first chapter and the last chapter and you get a pretty good idea what the book was about. Uh, I tend to read more than that in, 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 in books, but I sometimes look at the table of contents and read the chapters that I'm most interested in and so forth. And I, uh, I try to be somewhat episodic. Uh, for example, over this Christmas vacation, I will read much more than I did during the period in which I was in crisis with a client and just felt I had to work every moment of every day. You know, you have to balance uh, gathering new information and uh, putting out stuff. You, <laughs> you can't do that. You can't just make it all up. I, I, I'm not giving you a good answer as to how I make time other than I have a, a tremendous desire to read. So I'll, I will sit down with a book and read even when I know I should be doing something else because I'll just think to myself, well, maybe just another couple of chapters and then I'll get to work. <laughs> That's kind of how it gets done. I also read at night. Uh, I believe it's a good idea to not be doing screen time right up to the point in which you go to bed because uh, I think you sleep better if you if you don't do that. I think that that's great. And one of the tricks that I have now is uh, that I'm into audiobooks. And so I can listen to them as I'm doing the dishes or as I'm riding my bike to work or something like that. <clears throat> so that's that's a trick for me. But I still just, it's always a twofer for me where it's it's rarely I'm just sitting nestled on a couch and, you know, cuddled up with a good book. And so I've just been musing whether or not I should try to make that a habit. And uh, the best I can do right now is to do that with my kids. I mean, they're still at the age where I read to them. And so mm-hmm. I've been trying to reach out and do more and more, you know, kind of interesting novels with them. Um, but uh, just to wrap things up, uh, I, I have one more question, just more looking ahead. Um well, I guess it's a little bit looking back and it's a little bit looking ahead. I mean, if you had to stop working today at age 75, I think a lot of people have retired before your age, you know, would you be satisfied with your accomplishments and legacy? And if not, what do you see as unfinished business? Well, first of all, uh, you know, I had a very close call with uh, stopping working uh, this year. Uh, I, uh, had a diagnosis for cancer, and uh, the uh, uh, wow, there were there were two possibilities: one uh, uh, that uh, my life would uh, go on uh, 
more or less as it had, uh, or two, I would have about 15 months to live, depending on uh, more tests that were being done. And so I was looking at the 15 months, and uh, it, it it pretty much meant, uh, you know, you're probably done with major accomplishments because uh, wrapping up your life is, is going to uh, require some time just to finish the sentences that you're currently on and prepare your family for uh, uh, your absence. So, uh, and under those circumstances, I think I would say, uh, gee, uh, I think uh, I way underperformed my potential. But on the other hand, uh, I got a lot done. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've transformed the world in at least uh, uh, two ways. Uh, I, I think uh, BGI was very important, at least in its first years, in transforming the conversation about what business education should be, and that we significantly accelerated the move towards treating uh, sustainability and social justice as the proper vin that business business had to be working on those things. And secondly, I think that entrepreneuring has had a huge effect on, on, on the world and that it is a good effect in general. It's a good effect because employees are happier if they're given the opportunity to do entrepreneurial things that relate to their purpose and their, the meaning which they want to have in life. And secondly, if you free employees, as any entrepreneuring program is going to have to do to kind of pick their own directions and their own way of doing things to a much greater extent than you have normal in a bureaucracy, they will gravitate towards doing things which have meaning and purpose, and they will pull their companies in the general direction of dealing with the big issues of our, uh, of our time, because those issues are deeper in people's psyche than just uh, creating another widget that doesn't have any real uh, meaning other than you can sell it. Uh, 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 Yes, uh, you know, you need entrepreneurial energy for some of those other things, but people are, and, and this is increasingly true of the millennials, are have a very strong desire to be purpose-driven in their work. And, uh, uh, and that that, coupled with entrepreneuring, is having a good effect on the world. So, yeah, I, I think if, uh, if, if the end comes shortly, which... No reason to think, think that it wouldn't. Uh, uh, then, I would say, you know, it was a good life. That there's a lot more to do. So I'm very excited by the kind of work that's available to me, both in uh, uh, in the entrepreneuring space. Uh, I'm starting a fiction writing career, and I and I think that fiction is a is an interesting way to uh, influence the world. Uh, speaking of reading. Uh, if you, you know, my uh, my editor uh, at, at Barrett Kohler says, Gifford, there's there's really un unfriendly things going on in the in the book world that you need to know if you set out to write another book. One, uh, the uh, size of the business book market is half of what it was when you wrote Entrepreneuring. Two, the number of titles uh, vying for that space are twice as many. So divide whatever your expectations are by four in terms of sales of your uh, of your book. But it's worse than that, he said, uh, because uh, in fact, nobody actually reads books anymore. Uh, and so even if you sell books, the idea that people will read them, uh, that, that will only happen in a very small uh, percentage of the cases. So, we're, so thinking about that, uh, uh, I thought, well, what kind of books do people read? And the answer is they read novels. 
Uh, and so uh, maybe the way in which I'm going to communicate with the world will be through fiction rather than nonfiction, although I'm finishing my nonfiction career with a another book, which I think is important to get out there because there are things which are, are going wrong in the... Uh, in the entrepreneuring space, people are using it as a label for what looks very much to me like business as usual, and uh, and does not have uh, the true idea of the importance of liberation of employees to follow something that's meaningful to them. That's not really part of the story that's being told, and without that, entrepreneuring is a sham. So uh, uh, I want to correct that. I want to. I want to. I want to both uh, show a whole bunch of new possibilities for entrepreneuring among ordinary people as opposed to just superstars, that this is in fact a general concept, how uh, uh, perhaps even the majority of employees in an age in which uh, machines are willing to do most of the work, uh, uh, and uh, that includes the analytical work, that what we really need is uh, people in creative professions and design professions and things like that that machines can't do well, and those people have to be managed extremely difficultly, differently than uh, manufacturing employees. Uh, and, and the way in which they need to be managed has a lot in common with entrepreneurship. In fact, entrepreneurship is a wonderful model for what we really need uh, to make companies productive and to make people happy. So I want to make sure that, uh, that we have clear instructions on how to do that. Uh, and uh, so that's that's the new book, and then uh, and then probably uh, write uh, some some fiction, which probably will include some entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs uh, doing cool things. Uh, <laughs> that sounds great. And you know, despite what I said earlier about not reading books, so what's interesting is that I I don't listen to non uh, to fiction. I, I exclusively listen to. Uh, nonfiction books. So what what I would recommend for you is to make sure you get that book, whatever it is out in an, in a listenable format so that folks like me can download it to their phone and listen in the car, doing the dishes or on their bike commute. Um, and, and I, I really look forward to seeing what, what comes next from you, Gifford. I'm glad that you are going to have the time to put out that work that um, is still what I guess we would say is an unfinished business if, if it needs to be said mm -hmm. that. And so far, so good. Uh, you know, my health is going well. And uh, so I'm assuming that I have a little, uh, I'm acting as if I have more time and uh, thinking about uh, things and, and getting pleasure from working on things that have a longer, uh, a longer time frame. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Gifford. I uh, really appreciated you taking the time today and for this, um, this great interview that you've given. Uh, it was a pleasure working with you, and I think you're a great interviewer. So thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Gifford and gotten some ideas about how purpose in the workplace can propel you to overcome obstacles that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise and make meaningful change within your workplace and the lives you impact through it. And I hope you have a lot of fun doing that work. So here's my challenge for you. How can you optimize your HAPO-DAMO ratio? Can you have equal or greater happiness while lowering the amount of damage created in the process? I'd love to hear your ideas and get some inspiration. So whether you're listening to this podcast immediately after production or five years later, 
please go to my contact page on my website at ignitedwithmeaning.com and email me your idea. I'll plan to mention it on a future show. To learn more about Gifford, check out his website at pincho.com. That's P-I-N-C-H-O-T dot com. He's got a ton of links and resources on entrepreneuring, social responsibility, sustainability, and more. And be on the lookout for his new book on entrepreneuring too when it comes out. If you can't wait, you can always get a copy of the 1985 edition like I did, and you'll find that it still has a lot of relevant content. Though I do hope I get to listen to the updated version on audiobook when it comes out. Coming up next, are you a parent or an educator or curious about the role that purpose has in adolescence? My next two shows will be dedicated to the topics of the role that purpose plays in the lives of the upcoming generation and what we can do as parents or educators to help the next generation find purpose in their lives. I'll be starting with guest Heather Malin, who is the Director of Research at the Center on Adolescence at Stanford University. She's got a new book out called Teaching for Purpose. Thanks again to listening to this episode of Ignited with Meaning, where we're exploring the terrain of a meaningful life, creating a roadmap for that, and generating more happiness along the way. I hope you're walking away with some ideas and inspiration for living a meaningful life yourself. If you did, please share this podcast on social media or with a friend who you think would get something out of it. Until next time, be persistent, keep looking, and together we'll build the meaningful lives we want. Mm -hmm.